Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Jamie Brickhouse. He is the author of Dangerous When Wet. First, it was a book, and now it's a, a one-man show, and we'll be talking a little bit about that as we have the course of our conversation, but I'm thrilled to, to be ha having this talk with you today, Jamie. Thanks for having me, Ron. Yeah. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So now we've known each other for yeah. years, uh, because... You used to be a well. I guess you are still a publicist, but you used. I'm to not still a publicist. Oh, okay. But I am still connected to the publishing industry. Okay. I was a book publicist, yes. right, for many years. And that's the context. I'm a lecture I, agent now. Yeah. for authors. Okay, that's the context in which I knew you originally. Yeah. is that uh, you were a publicist for a number of book publishing companies. Basically, you were the guy that I went to when I wanted to talk to writers. Right. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot about that in this memoir, but before we get to that, let's we'll, we'll we'll take it back to the beginning, and it starts with you growing up in Texas. Correct, in Beaumont, Texas, little old flat as a flitter, hot and steamy, oil refinery capital, Beaumont, Texas, and you know some of the the key themes in, in your life story. You know, if we had to boil them down to three, they all sort of like spring out of the same uh, out of that same like Big Bang. Mm -hmm. um, it's your relationship with your mom. Yep. Mama Jean. Yep. You're being gay and your alcoholism. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Those are the, um, uh, well, the, and the, the hardcover, the title was just Dangerous When Wet, a memoir. But every time I described the book, when people would ask me, you know, what's your book about, I would say, uh, it's about booze, sex, and my mother. And they said, oh, well, that could be a good title. So when we, when we did the paperback, we decided to add that as the subtitle because it really does sum up what it's about. And when I started writing it, I knew I wanted to write... Well, I started... I had the pie-in-the-sky idea that I was going to do a memoir. And I start, when I started writing, I it was writing about my alcoholism, and I was writing about my mother, Mama Jean. And I, at one point, I thought, okay, yeah, I, I do think I have a book here, but I've got to pick. You know, I, I should either write a book about her, a memoir about my relationship with her, or about my alcoholism. But I found that even the pieces that were... Only about the alcoholism, there was an undercurrent of Mama Jean in there, and then the pieces about her, the booze was there. So I found they were inextricable. So I decided to write about my alcoholism through the prism of my relationship with her. I mean, we don't want to be reductive, but, you know, there's a certain sense, I mean, a, a hinting at that, like, one of the sort of pressures that fueled your, your drinking was your relationship with your mom, the idea of... You talk about always having to be like, as you described, that sort of personality in the book, the, you know, what she called Lord Randall, my son, mm -hmm. that you always had to be like the good boy, the up boy, you know, the, the happy boy. Right, right. Right, without being, you know, and what I think where you were going with that is that, you know, did, did she cause my alcoholism or did I drink? I don't think that's Did true. I drink? No. And, and it's not true. And a lot of people, um, and I don't, and you made it clear that that's not your, um, understanding of it, but a lot of people do who don't, uh, especially who don't understand alcoholism and addiction, and that they they want to, especially in Hollywood movies, they love to do this. Not so much now, but they used to in the old days. Is pin it to some emotional moment or some bad relationship, or you know. And, but I think that most or I believe, and certainly it's true in my case and, and others that I know, alcoholics and addicts are wired that way. But my relationship with her was. An addictive relationship um, that was sometimes that was often destructive, but in the end 
save me, unlike my relationship with, with alcoholism. And I certainly drank at her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, out of anger or frustration, but she, I don't believe that she caused me to be an alcoholic. I think I was just born that way and that it was waiting to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between something being a trigger and something being a cause. Correct. Yeah. Or one of the things that is important about growing up in Texas is that, I mean, your mom was already in love with New York and mm-hmm. kind of instilled that love in you. You had determined very early on that you wanted to be a writer when you were young. And you actually, like, I mean, you, you did some writing in college, too, right? I did do some writing. I wrote in in school, you know, from, I mean, from the time early on. And, you know, in junior high, I was on the school newspaper. In high school, the same thing. Mama Jean saw that in me, saw that, that writing talent, and I, which is a talent that comes from my father. And um, she also saw my drinking in me at an early age, you know, saw both of those in me. But so she always want, thought I'd be a writer and mm-hmm. wanted me to be a writer. And she used to, you know, her chant was, you should be a writer. That's what you should be doing. You know, I did come to New York and got into publishing with her help. She kind of pushed me. I mean, I did want to be in New York, but she made that, she kind of made it happen and pushed me into the Radcliffe. I took the Radcliffe Publishing course at her suggestion, which is now the Columbia Publishing course, to get into publishing. And with and it was her hopes that I'd become a writer through doing that. But, you know, working with writers and being a writer are two different things. You have to write to be a writer is what I discovered <laughs> years later. So I did want it, but I didn't. But I, I was more interested in the theater and wanted to be an actor. And she loved the theater. And you know, exposed me to that throughout my childhood. Both my parents did. But then she kind of pulled back and was like, you know, yeah, yeah, but, you know, great to be an audience member, but you don't want to, you don't want to pursue that. It's too hard of a life. It's a trashy life. So I moved to New York, you know, with kind of the unsaid notion that that I wanted to be an actor and then became a book publicist. <laughs> Before we get into the publishing industry, uh, so one of the things that you did write in college and you write about in the memoir is you wrote a two-person scene between a woman, a young woman, and her gay friend. Right. And that was pretty much your coming out. It ended up being your coming out experience uh, to your parents. I was in a playwriting class in my freshman year in college, and I had, and my mother was very excited about that, and she couldn't wait to see what I'd written, and I sent her this first scene. She called... And said, oh, my God, you know, we got it. We love it. It's just wonderful. And, oh, yeah, I'm telling you, you can be a writer and all that. And then she stopped and she was uncharacteristically hesitant. And then she said, but you don't have tendencies like that. It just came out. And I said, so to speak. And I said, "Uh, well, yeah, actually, um, I do. And she just screamed, Earl, get on the phone! That was my father. <laughs> and the, and I came out to them uh, over the phone. Right. And for for context, for listeners, this would have been about... 86. 86. Yeah. yeah. So they were conservative. So you, mm-hmm. I think where you're going there is there also the AIDS crisis. Yeah, in that's blood. one way we could take that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, that, that, and that was something that you were, were thinking about, too, is you were an adolescent, you know, starting to explore your sexuality. That... You and I are exactly the same age. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're actually like a couple years older than me. But I was born in 68. Okay, so yeah, you're like a year and a half older than me. You know, we came of age at a point where our introduction into like sexual awakening as adolescents was basically like, there is this plague out there, and mm-hmm. it's a sex plague. And even, I think, for, for teenagers and, and young men who weren't gay. By by 86, there was... I mean, it was certainly still characterized as the gay disease. Yeah. But by then, there was also this sort of 
you know, panic about all the other ways that you could, that heterosexuals could get it if they weren't careful. Right. Basically, there was this all pervasive sort of like panic about sex. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and to, to, to come out, uh, you know, to, to find yourself in the midst of all that, it's, it's a, it's a difficult process. Yeah. I, I mean, cause I, and I couldn't, you know, well, I mean, like most people, I was going to say like most young gay men, but most people, I think, are, you know, you, you, you come of age and you, your hormones are raging and you want to have sex. And, yeah, right. And I came of age when there was this, this plague going on. And I, and I remember like, you know, I was a little bit younger when it first hit, and I remember, you know, there was a news report on television watching it with, with Mama Jean, and, you know, and then they were showing the, the hedonistic lifestyle of the gay men, you know, and showing some shirtless men dancing uh, at a disco, and that they were promiscuous, and and all this, and, you know, and Mama Jean was like, oh, my God, you know, kind of like, oh, that, you know, that's just terrible, or, you know, and, and I was thinking to myself, you know, don't stop before I get there, because I couldn't wait. It was daunting, but it didn't stop me either. I mean, I, I came of age when there, when safe sex was protocol. Yeah. You just knew from the beginning that you were supposed to have, supposed to use a condom, which I did most of the time. You know, just the idea of not using a condom was, was always, it was ingrained, at least in me, of that that was deadly, not just taboo. So you, you go up to college, you, you do this, and then, as you say, your mom sets you up with the Radcliffe Publishing course, you come to New York City, you get into book publishing. I, I think you find that it's it's an environment... That turned out to be very conducive to the kind of partying slash drinking lifestyle that you embraced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I came here, it was 1990, and in the publishing world, they were saying, you know, the you know publishing was you know notorious for a a, 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 a drinking culture, and you know they said the three martini lunch is dead, and I used to joke that I was bringing it back. Uh, one lunch at a time. I, you know, I was immediately in love with New York. I was in New York when she first brought me here when I was a freshman in, in high school. And I've been here ever since 1990, and I still love New York. And it's the only place for me. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a place where it was easy to embrace that drinking, partying culture. And, you know, I was in a job as a publicist where, you know, you wine and dine the media and take out authors and all that. And we're, you know, drinking and and all that is was accepted so it was easy to do that and then also i had been you know i had had coming from texas i had had a car since i was 15 and i always drove and i drove a lot drunk in in high school i mean in college and uh, well in high school too but that was also a big plus for being in new york it's like oh i don't have to drive anymore <laughs> you know so i could just drink as much as i want and pour myself into a cab but i did embrace and for me the, or the kind of drinker that i was was i embraced the the glamour of it, and I love old movies, and and I love that. Love that. From when I was a child, like long before I ever had a drink, I was I couldn't wait to have a drink because I saw because I wanted to be an adult, and I saw drinking as the fast ticket to adulthood. You know, that's just the, the, drinking is something you do as an adult, and um, and it was and it was part of my identity for a long time. It took took a long time. It sounds like from from getting here in 1990, it feels like there were always sorts of like indications and warning signs, but it still took you a long time to really sort of hit the kind of bottom 
in the parlance. Where, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you managed to drink hard for a long time, is what I'm saying. Right, yeah. right, yeah. I did. I, I also used drugs, but I was not into them in the way, as heavily as, as, as an identified drug addict was. And then, I was kind of afraid of them. But what's, what's good and bad about that is that oftentimes the, the hard drug user, the, the really serious user, it'll, if they survive it, their bottom often comes quicker because you can't sustain it um, using drugs to that level, but with drinking, you can go a very long time, and I, and I was a, you know, what I call a functioning alcoholic for many years, and I even joked openly about it, you know, oh, yeah, I'm a functioning alcoholic, oh, you know, Betty Ford is, you know, is, you know, like on vacations, oh, you know, well, I'm going to need Betty Ford Clinic after this vacation, and um, I eventually did. Yeah, so the warning signs, yeah, in which I talk about, I mean, the, the book is a Chronicle, and I and, and I call it darkly comic because I mean the stories are you know they're they're funny as well as tragic or at least you know dark and sad and sometimes scary. Yeah, but showing my descent along the way. But the, but the earliest moment that I described, which was which was it was kind of my first window that things weren't right, and it was long before I ever thought that I was an alcoholic or even thought about that I had a problem and should stop drinking was I, I love the singer Peggy Lee, and, you know, there's the song that she's most famous for is that existential song, Is That All There Is? You know, is that if, you know, she sings about all these life's tragedies, and, and at, at the end she just, you know, is that all there is to the circus? You know, eh, is that all there is to love, etc. And I drunk dialed her one, and I loved her, I loved, and I loved all of her music, and one night a friend of mine, and we were drunk, and he happened to have her phone number, and I, we drunk dialed her, you know, and I tell her, oh my God, you know, I can't tell you how many drunken nights you've gotten me through, and she says, well, I guess my life was worth living. <laughs> and it's very funny, and it's you know like what does she mean by that? Was it you know was it an ironic and uh, like uh, a slap in the face that if she got some drunk on the other end of the line that perhaps her life had meaning, or was she truly acknowledging my reverence for her in the song? It was a moment where I thought about my life, and I was it was an is that all there is moment because at that point you know I thought I've got everything I want, I've got you know this cute New York apartment, a you know man who loves me, a career and working with writers as opposed to being a writer and endless parties and endless booze and then but there's that question at the end is that all there is you know something was missing by this time in your life too yeah it's another funny moment in the memoir eddie fisher had like basically taken a look at you oh right having a drink at like four (laughs) in the afternoon like you're an alcoholic and it's like when eddie fisher tells you you're an addict Exactly. But yeah, it, did, he, it didn't click for you, though. No, because I just laughed, and you know, and he laughed. But he, you know, he meant it to be funny, mm-hmm. but he also meant it. Yeah, I, I yeah, I always just say that he was the second person to call me an alcoholic. The first being Mama Jean, because mm-hmm. she was onto it, and she was not a drinker. I mean, she was a, a social drinker, which means you can take or leave it. Yeah, which I used to think I didn't know that what that term meant until I got sober. I thought that a social drinker was some. I thought I was one because I like to drink socially, but no, it means you know you don't care about it one way or the other. So I don't want to say that the industry enables this kind of addictive behavior because I, again. I think that's reductive. Right. Um, and you can say that about a lot of industries. Exactly. Advertising. Mm-hmm. But I get the sense from the way that you tell the story, there was a lot of turning a blind eye as long as, as you say, you were a functioning alcoholic. Right. 
And it's only until you stopped functioning so well. And also, I mean, again, Jamie and I have known each other for years, including <laughs> the period in which a lot of this takes place. Right. All of this comes as news to me. It's not like your addiction was common knowledge throughout the industry or anything. Right, like right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was, I, I loved a party. I still love a party. And, and I was the kind, I was that fun loving guy life at the party. And if I drank at lunch, you know, I, I never, I don't think I ever got really messy in front of a client or, you know, in front of an author or, or, or at a, at a business function, you know, but then I would, the drinking would go on into the night, you know, and that's when it got really messy and really sloppy up to a point until my second to last publishing job where I was both physically and mentally dependent on the booze simply couldn't stop. Even when I knew I was good at getting in trouble, even when I knew I wasn't able to show up for the job all the time. And then of course people did know about it and knew that the drinking was a problem and I was no longer functioning and I was no longer able to produce. Like you said before, they turned a blind eye, even when, you know, the times are like, oh, he was a little inappropriate last night, or that, you know, or, you know, oh, he's, you know, seems a little hungover this morning, but I was still producing. I was still getting the job done and done well. And then at the end, I wasn't. I wasn't getting the job done. I wasn't showing up. That was one of my bottoms, was getting fired from that job, because I was it was devastating to me because I had always done well in life. I was always the straight A kid. You know, I had always progressed, gotten promoted and all that. And that was so devastating and humiliating to me. And even though I got another job right after that, I couldn't get over that. But it was a gift that yeah. I was fired from that job because yeah. it led to my, it led to my ultimate bottom and that got me sober. Because uh, I was going to say, it was an internal shame and he, because of the way that you were fired where you were basically invited to leave what's right, right so it's not like anybody else knew that it's like oh yeah he got fired because he was you know he's he's, he's a sloppy drunk and as you say because of that you were able to land another job pretty quickly yeah where you picked right up and that's the point at which you know one morning you just didn't show up for work and you decided that you were going to end it well and leading up to not to be reductive mm -hmm. alcohol as I'm sure you know, is a depressant. Yeah, sure, we drink it to, to, to make the party more fun, to bring us out of our depression, but what it ultimately does is, if you drink a lot of it, as I was, is it sinks you into a terrible depression. And I was drinking so much, I was only getting the depressive acts, uh, depressive effects of the, of the alcohol. And also I was drinking so much that I had to have it physically. So what led up to that, that morning, when I took an overdose of pills, I had been obsessing over suicide uh, or having suicidal thoughts and ideation for, you know, a few months because I just thought that my life was over. And, you know, that I, and I hadn't done anything creatively back to, to wanting to be an actor and to wanting to write. I had kind of dabbled in both those things when I came to New York, when I started in publishing. And when my career was taking off, None of that was taking off because you really have to work at it and mm -hmm. work hard at it. But my drinking was also taking off, and I kind of made a decision. It's like, ah, you know what? I can't, I can't be bothered with that. I need to focus yeah. on my career, and I don't have time for that because when I'm not working during the day, I'm out drinking and having fun. It's like there's three things. There's our career, mm -hmm. our creativity, and our drinking. And the creative. Those are the two that you chose. Yeah, and the <laughs> yeah. Cre exactly. The, so 
what led up to that day is I was, you know, it, 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 in other words, like some some people aren't, no one's an overnight success. I don't think I, or at least I wasn't an overnight suicide attempt person, mm-hmm. it, it, meaning it, 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 I had thoughts for a long time before it got to that point. And I was probably about to lose that job because I had been not showing up for a while. And then just that morning, it was very impulsive. I overslept sent my boss a stale excuse of why I wasn't coming in. She shot back again, three question marks. And that's when I just thought I can't do this anymore. Impulsively grabbed the sleeping pills. and So by this time, you had already sort of like started and stopped the sobriety clock a number of times. Correct. Right. I Yeah, I had tried to get sober a few years before that. And... I don't think had you had you ever hit the ninety day mark before then or no most I had was around fifty fifty four days yeah but this was the one and and also because of of, of the way that you, you had overdosed Mama Jean came up right this was the one where you got like the real heavy duty intervention yeah and the book opens with me coming to on the emergency room gurney after the overdose to the news that Mama Jean is on a flight from Texas. And I freak out, and I'm more concerned, I'm more worried about her, about facing her than I am about the suicide attempt that got me there. Because I'm thinking, if you know, if she's not involved, like why did why did why did anyone tell her? Because if she didn't know about it, then I could sweep it under the rug and I could deal with it myself. But I wasn't dealing with it myself. Is the truth of that? And I had so much fear about facing her and, you know, and, and, and having her, you know, shake a red fingernail on my face and yell, God damn it! You know, she liked to do. But what I realized later, and her, that's not her reaction, um, when I do finally see her after I come out of the hospital, my fear in facing her, it wasn't about her, it was about my fear in facing myself. Because she wasn't going to let it be swept under the rug, you know, and it was her presence up here uh, and her checkbook that got me in rehab. There's a moment after you're out of rehab, sort of like the relationship or the, the sort of like interlocking between your alcoholism and your relationship with your mother really became clear for me, really sort of clicked into place. Your mother is telling the story to one of your friends oh. about mm-hmm. how, and, and you're just like, right over there. <laughs> we, we are in the apartment where this happened. Right. <laughs> She's telling one of your friends how awful it was to find you or to deal with this. And you're sitting there thinking, it's like, this is my story. It's not about, you know, why do you have to, like, co-opt my story all right? Yeah. And make it about you. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that, that's one of her, that's who she was. She was a person who had no filter, and she never had a thought. She didn't speak. And she would retail to anyone who would listen, the horror that she went through when she got the phone call that said I'd, you know, taken an overdose, etc. Yeah, so she was telling a, a friend this. And I was mad, and I was embarrassed, because I still, I also didn't want people to know that I had done that. I wasn't out about mm-hmm. what had happened. And she was telling a good, happened to be a good friend of mine, but who did know? But still, I was embarrassed. And a lot of people um, to this day would agree with me that maybe she shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, I had a moment where, as you said, I said to myself, you know, why is she doing, you know, why, I wish she would quit telling my story to anyone who was within earshot. But then I also realized it's her story. Part of it is her story, mm-hmm. and you know, in other words, and that, that's really what she was telling, even though I wish she sits at herself. What was it that finally clicked for you, as we've said, after a number of false starts at sobriety? What was it that finally sort of clicked for you and made it possible for you? You know, there's a point at which 
you see a sign, I think that it, it says like this is a place for people who who no longer have the desire to drink. Right. And you're thinking it's like, well, no, I I still, you know, how about a place for people who, who need not to drink? Right. So right. what was what was it that got you to that point where if you have in fact lost the desire to mm-hmm. drink? It's this is a program for people who have a desire to stop drinking. And I thought, mm, you know, shouldn't they change that to it's a place for people who need to stop drinking? Because I knew I needed to stop drinking. But I didn't go the, the next step and ask myself, do I have a desire? Not Because I thought I did. I mean, this is a, a, I read that sign in rehab, and I thought I was done. I came back, and I kept relapsing. You know, I would have seven months, and then something would happen. You know, in my, you know, I drink over it. You know, a best friend hurt my feelings and I drink over it. And seven months later, project at work that was overwhelming to me or, I, and I drank over it. When I, so when I was still struggling and I just, I couldn't get it and I didn't, and, and I, I think I realized I didn't fully have the desire. I hadn't quite, quite surrendered to the fact that I was an alcoholic and needed to surrender to a, a, a program of sobriety. And my mother had, she was so proud of me that I had, had got, you know, had, that I'd gotten sober. And I never told her that I was relapsing after the fact. And then she went haywire. Uh, she started, she, she, her mind had been hijacked by Lewy body dementia. So I think Alzheimer's is only weirder and worse. It's what Robin Williams supposedly had and Casey Kasem had it, but it's still kind of a little known form of dementia. And when she first went haywire and I went down to Texas and to see her, and I don't even know if she knew who I was. And at one point when I turned away to leave her, she grabbed my arm in a vice grip and she just looked at me as fiercely as, you know, so many times as she had in my past. And she was all of a sudden herself when she hadn't been there the entire visit. And she said, you've been drinking. I said, no, I haven't. And I hadn't. But I was about seven months sober and I was struggling Still, again, white-knuckling it to finally mm-hmm. get a year. She said, you better not be lying. And I thought, you know, who'd blame me if I drank over my mother losing her mind? And then I thought, you know, there's another way to look at it. If you can't stay sober for yourself, do it for her. And I looked her in the eye and I said, you don't have to worry anymore. She said, promise me. And I said, I promise. And that was the push I needed to finally get me over the... To me, at that point, it was like, I got to get a year. And I... Because and, I kept, you know backsliding and that was the push i needed and five months later she died and which coincided with my year my final uh, or when i finally got a year sober and i've been sober ever since now anyone who knows anything about recovery in the program you have to stay you have to have that desire for yourself you you can't do it for someone else or for a job or for a car or for a coat or whatever. You have to do it for yourself ultimately. That is what has kept me sober is that I'm, I I want it for myself. But doing it for her was that last push that I needed. When did you hit upon, you know, as we talked about way back in the beginning, you know, you started out wanting a creative life and got sidelined into publicity i shouldn't say sideline because yeah, it was a great job and you were great at it yeah what prompted you to pick that back up again i need i had a lot of time on my hands after i stopped drinking because drinking takes up a lot of your time but i was also aware of it you know when i when i stopped the even in rehab i started talking about you know with some of the guys that i was friendly with that i would start writing again going back to my creative pursuits that i had dropped a long time ago you know i hadn't written or performed in anything in years 
oh, I don't know, a year or so after? No, it was a little earlier than that. Um, a friend of mine who was working for a magazine had me write a piece, and a couple of pieces, travel restaurant pieces, and it got me writing again. I liked what I produced, and, and I was proud of it. I thought, mm, and I, the idea of writing a memoir about my booze and, and or about my mother after she died was percolating, and a friend, uh, an editor friend that I used to work with, saw one of the pieces that I wrote, and she said, oh, this is really good. Do you, are you interested in writing more? Because a friend of mine is just starting a writing workshop. She's grad, uh, leaving Columbia writing program and starting her own workshop. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I enrolled in that workshop, and it was a year after Mama Jean died and two years after I was sober when I started that workshop and started writing that memoir. And here's the thing that's interesting to me is that because you're a publishing industry veteran, and particularly working in publicity, trying to get attention <laughs> to all sorts of books. Yeah. You, you see where I'm going with this. And it's like, you know how, how damn hard it is. I do know how hard it is. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, get, you know, to get a book noticed. And yet you, pl- you, you plunged ahead anyway. <laughs> yeah. And there was, I, I, there was some, I got a lot of great coverage on, on Dangerous and Wet. But I also, as a public, I also know that there were a lot of things that didn't happen that I thought of, would have or should have or could have. But is it better to have the knowledge that I have or not? It's better to have the knowledge I have. But also it's sometimes hard because you know, A, you can get overwhelmed by knowing how difficult it is to make a splash. And then and B, you can also get depressed knowing that, oh, you know, I I should be on fresh air or, or you know, or whatever when those things don't happen. I wonder too, Is so is it hard to sort of like let go and let, uh, and let your publicist... Without sort of like stepping in and being like, you know, well, what if we do this? What if we do this? It is, actually. And I'll be, be honest, I wish I had actually, I did let go and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had stepped in more earlier on because I know as a publicist, as, as a former overworked book publicist where you have several projects that you're working on and you can only spend so much time on each one that it's better to be which i what i learned about is it's better to be aggressive um, than passive and i was passive but i did also do i was aggressive on my own as far as working my own contacts you know and i was able to get a lot of um oppressed that way then let's talk about the transition from having written this as a memoir to uh, turning it into performance um, that it is now. It's, yeah, it's, it's a dramatic monologue, right? It's a yeah, it's a solo show. It's a solo show. It's a okay. solo show, not just a monologue. I mean, you know, there's movement on stage, there are okay. visuals. However, the way I got into it and the way I got back into performing, which has also been a gift of of, of sobriety, is, and is that I'm now doing both those creative. Fulfilling both of those creative sides of me that had gone away, which was both the writing and the and the performing. And ironically, it came from the writing because once I started writing the book, I was like, oh, some of these stories, like the Peggy Lee story, that was one of the first stories I performed. It was the drunk dialing Peggy Lee. I started performing those stories various places, but I I, I didn't I didn't know that there was this whole storytelling world. And uh, all I knew about was the moth. I had heard about this thing called the moth, and a friend of mine who had done it. And won a bunch of their story slams. It took me a couple of years ago, and so I started performing at the Moth and performing those stories. And then it opened up this whole world of storytelling. And there are all these there are all these different shows and venues around town and well around the country. And so I started performing, you know, writing, adapting stories from the book while I was writing it, and then after it was published and performing them. 
until I had, you know, I had enough that I had uh, could put together for the show for a show, and then I was invited to do to do it as a solo show for the Tank, this nonprofit arts group in Midtown, for a uh, an, a Pride festival that they had this summer. And so I, I turned it into a 70 minute, 75 minute show for what should have been, it was supposed to be 60 minutes, so I went over. And now I, I then submitted it to Frigid New York, which is, uh, it's a, it's a fringe festival, basically, and it takes place here in New York in the winter. And I'm doing it at the Crane Theater into this month, February 23rd through March 4th. And it's just 60 minutes, and they're very strict about the time because they have so many shows going on. And some of the shows are performing back-to-back, and you can't go over. So I really, what this taught me, I mean, writing the book, of course, taught me about editing and cutting and, and trimming material, you know, because especially when you write a memoir, you have the burden of too much information, mm-hmm. and you really have to be a, like a French chef making a reduction sauce. And that's what it's really felt like, um, turning... A 271-page book into a 60-minute show. So I really had to reduce it to those three things, booze, sex, and my mother. So, you know, my relationship with my partner, Micah Hayes, is not, there's not much at all in there. There's, you know, there a lot of the, all the publishing stories are not in there. So, it, but it really just focuses on, on booze and her. And there's a lot of comedy in there, you know, there's like there is in the book. So where do you see your creative work? And I have, oh, I have to say, I, I got a great director this time. Like when I did it this summer, I did it all, all on my own. I wrote it and, and performed it and, and all by my, all by myself. And this time I got a director, which it, it's I like the difference between a writer writing on their own. And then when a writing, when a writer has an editor, it's made a huge difference. Uh, David Drake, who's, well-known in the theater world as both an actor and a director. And, and where do you see your creative life heading after this? Um, I'm working on two books right now. I, I started writing another memoir, which about is about my father, who died a couple of years ago, Earl. been writing on that for a, a pretty much after Dangerous When Wet came out. I started it. And then I put it on the back burner because I, someone... I'm also writing a YA novel. Well, in the meantime, there is Dangerous When Wet. As Jamie said, it's a story of booze, sex, and his mother. And if you're... And not always together. No. Don't worry. (laughs) You may be fortunate enough to see it as a solo show in New York, but if not, there is the book. So, So get the book. You've been listening to Life Stories. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you can go to iTunes and throw some stars at it, please, and give it a nice review. That just makes it a little bit easier for other people to find the podcast. And if you subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, you'll also know whenever new episodes go up. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Take care.